0: Welcome to the latest episode of Demolition Digest, your weekly roundup of the hottest and most listened to audio content from right here at Demolition News Radio. We have a bumper crop of content for you this week with segments including Influencing from Within. It's at times like these that you find out who your friends are. The unseen cost of plant and attachment theft. One knock-knock that is no joke. And our most popular broadcast to date, pies and pilgrimage. But first, this. This show is brought to you by Hydroquip, the UK's largest independent provider of on-site hose repairs. Call 0845 812 0212 for the 24-7 national call-out service or download the Hydroquip Job Manager app for iOS and Android devices from the App Store. But we start with our business briefing for the month of September 2017, brought to you in conjunction with the Builders Conference and the BC Live League Table, the UK's only real-time register of new construction contract awards. Anyone hoping that the unprecedented high achieved by the BC Live League Table in August would be maintained or that it might prompt a boost of industry confidence, was either naive or out of touch with the realities of the current state of the UK construction nation. Almost £7 billion in contract awards against a single mammoth project, and the £11 billion monthly total it created, was a freak, an economic glitch, an anomaly. And in true construction fashion, the BC Live League table for September bit back hard. The overall t- total plummeting to just over £3 billion and returning the industry to the downward trajectory it's endured in the latter part of the year. Housing-related projects contributed more than a third of the league's table's monthly tally, with £1.36 billion. Schools, colleges and universities added a further £561 million. Geographically, Greater London was, as ever, top of the pile but once again the region failed to top the £1 billion mark it had been achieving until recently. Furthermore, with the notable exception of July 2017, the number of contract awards gathered during September was the lowest for more than 20 months. If that were not evidence of eno- enough of a continued slowing in demand, then the quarterly roundup of figures most certainly are. The number of projects recorded during the third quarter to the end of September was down 25% on the previous quarter, take out the freakishly large HS2-related work last month, and the value of those projects was down by 20% against the previous quarter as well. August 2017 was an incredible high, but like all highs, a low is bound to follow, and the coming down in September feels less like a return to what has become a new norm, and more like plummeting off the edge of a cliff. With that continued weakening of construction demand, Our show earlier this week It's at times like these that you find out who your real friends are Seems strangely appropriate So here it is again It's at times like these you find out who your friends are It's a throwaway remark that we've all heard And probably used dozens if not hundreds of times It normally refers to the positive and supportive response Of a small and select handful of people During a time of crisis or stress I know I've said it at countless times over the years But there's another group of friends that take this a good deal further. An even more select group of friends that rally to your aid at a time when they too are suffering problems or challenges of their own. And it's to those noble individuals to which I would like to give a nod today. I've been on this planet for 52 and a bit years, and I've been extremely fortunate. Despite being a lifetime chocoholic and having enjoyed a career in journalism at a time when you were expected to drink like the proverbial fish, I enjoyed 51 years of good health. Aside from having my tonsils removed when I was 18 and suffering a one-off asthma attack when I was 21, I have avoided hospitals almost entirely, until 2016. In 2016, the wheels of my personal health didn't just fall off, they imploded, sending shrapnel coursing around my body like a badly executed demolition blast. First up, my appendix burst. Quite how such a small, insignificant and largely redundant organ can cause quite so much pain is beyond me. But trust me, it can. Of course, the fact that I chose to ignore it for six days, putting the pain down to food poisoning, probably didn't help matters. By the time I was rushed to hospital, several of my organs had started to shut down, and poisonous appendix shrapnel was coursing around my body. That was three weeks in hospital. Such was the level of infection that they were unable to operate. Instead, my body was flooded with antibiotics and I was sent home to recover. That didn't go well. Within two weeks I was readmitted as my bowel and parts of my stomach succumbed to the poisoning as well. This was a process and procedure that I would repeat several times. Even though my appendix had imploded, I even managed to contract appendicitis in the remaining stump. According to a junior consultant, this is so rare that he intended to write a medical paper on it. Just what you want to hear when you're flat on your back for the umpteenth time. But my guided tour of the UK hospitals was far from over. I'd only been on back on my feet a few weeks when I was involved in a demolition accident that sent me straight back to hospital once again. I didn't pass go. I didn't collect £200. I was just casted off in an ambulance, a brick-shaped dent in the side of my face. You can see the immediate aftermath of that accident in a YouTube video called Accidents Can Happen to Anyone, if you're that way inclined. Where were we? Oh yes, friends. Because of the nature of my illness, and subsequent accident, I basically fell off the map. DemolitionNews.com ground to a halt. Demolition Magazine went on an enforced hiatus. Everything stopped. The first time I realised just who some of my friends were was when I finally turned on my iPhone, I was hit with a deluge of texts, emails and social media messages checking on my whereabouts. Some wondered where their weekly email newsletter had gone to. Some suggested that I'd given up. A couple thought I'd died. But amongst those were a small handful of persistent respondents whose calls and queries escalated from, Are you OK? to, I'm really worried about you. Please get in touch. It was those same individuals that were quickest to respond, also when I had my accident. And it was those same people that also picked up on the fact that my writing and my general demeanour had taken a turn for the worst after the death of my best friend in a motorcycle accident. Those individuals were, were from across the industry spectrum. Several offered to loan me money to tide me over while I recovered. Some offered me paid work that they could quite easily have done themselves, probably better, just to ensure that my cash flow remained largely positive. I even had an editor of what is in some ways a rival magazine, offering to write for Demolition magazine free of charge while I got back on my feet. With hindsight, what strikes me about all of these individuals, aside from the fact that I should be forever in their debt, was that they all had their own challenges and concerns with which to contend. Two of the demolition company principals were themselves struggling to maintain a positive cash flow. In fact, one of them would eventually go under as a result. Others were busy juggling multiple clients he had offered to help me out. And my friend, the magazine editor, has an unmovable monthly deadline of his own to hit. Yet each of them are willing to try to do something to help me, my business, and most of all my family, in our hour of need. I say this a lot on Demolition News Radio, mainly because I tend to ramble. But what has all this got to do with demolition? Well, for one thing, most of the people that offered me help and support during my various recovery periods were demolition men. And in this instance, they were actually men but I'm making this point for an entirely different reason. Demolition is an industry with a huge ego. We like nothing more than talking about our own accomplishments. The industry gathers regularly, partly to hopefully share best practice, but also to brag about that latest contract win, boast about that latest project completion, or crow about that latest equipment and purchase. Whether by personal choice or lack of invitation, those that are not currently riding high those that are struggling financially, tend to be notably absent from these gatherings. At precisely the time when these people and companies need the support of their fellow demolition men and women the most, they are overlooked, ignored and exiled. Ours is a cyclical business in which each peak is followed as sure as eggs is eggs by an economic trough. While we might be making good money today, chances are we will be scratching around tomorrow. While we might currently have more work than there are hours in the day, we could find ourselves twiddling our thumbs in a few months or even weeks down the line. No one, not close friends nor family, no one understands that better than a fellow demolition man. Thanks to Brexit and the playground spat between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un, the next economic downturn is hurtling down the road towards us all. When it hits, we will need the support and understanding of each other, and that is when you find out who your true friends are. Thanks for listening. With news that Kelp Brendan Kerr has been elected non-executive vice chairman of Build UK, the demolition industry has an opportunity to wield greater influence than ever before among the great and the good of the construction sector. There has long been a perception that demolition is the poor relation to construction. And, in my opinion at least, construction has done very little to contradict that belief, but an appointment to the board of Build UK, an association of the UK's largest and most influential construction companies, has the potential to change all that. At this year's annual general meeting, Build UK members formally elected Calpbrae's CEO, Brendan Kerr, as its new Executive Vice Chair. Kerr's appointment this for a two-year term, and follows the announcement of Kelpray as a new member of Build UK formerly the UK Contractors Group, earlier this year. The demolition sector has attempted, with varying degrees of success, to exert influence upon the UK Contractors Group and build UK in the past. But there's always been a feeling that this influence was akin to King Canute attempting to hold back the tide, or, as my father would put it, farting against thunder. Kerr has the the potential to influence from within, to present the case for the specialist contractor to put demolition front and centre. Of course, Kerr's company Kelp is no longer a pure demolition company. A glance at the company's website says that Kelp today is a specialist business that offers engineering, construction, demolition, decommissioning, remediation, rail and environmental services and reinforced concrete structure solutions. But Kerr has demolition running through his veins and his election to such a high-profile and potentially influential position should be welcomed by all those within demolition that have felt underrepresented at the construction industry's top table. If Brendan Kerr is actually permitted to wield any power, we must all hope that he brings some of that influence to bear on the subject of late, or in many cases, non-payment. This is a subject that we addressed with just a little help from John Travolta. We got ourselves a broken arrow. A broken what? It's what we call it when we lose a nuclear weapon. I don't know what's scarier, losing nuclear weapons, but that it happens so often there's actually a term for it. That was a clip from the 1996 movie Broken Arrow, in which a villainous John Travolta steals a nuclear missile. I'll play it, not because I'm a particular fan of Mr. Travolta's work, although he is great in Pulp fiction, but because of that phrase. I don't know what's scarier, losing nuclear weapons, or that it happens so often there's actually a term for it. I was reminded of this phrase just this week when I heard the term "knocked" for the umpteenth time. For those of you from outside of the UK or from outside of the demolition business, and if you're outside the demolition business, what the hell are you listening to this show for? The term knocked refers to non-payment by a client or main contractor, as in... I just got knocked for 120 grand, or the firm collapsed because they got knocked by a client. As in the Travolta movie, it happens so often there's actually a term for it. Getting knocked comes in many forms. There's the non-payment of entire invoices, partial or late payment, non-payment over insurance claims, and clients quibbling over certain aspects of a bill, delaying payment for months or even years. Regardless of the circumstances, the effect can be devastating for the demolition or specialist contractor. But while clients and main contractors can sit on their hands and sit on the demolition company's money, that demolition firm still has to pay wages, fuel, insurances, equipment maintenance costs, and his family still needs to eat. There have been numerous, countless attempts over the years to introduce schemes and initiatives to speed up payments to specialist contractors. Some contractors have tried, with varying degrees of success, to charge interest on late payments. But even though this is a recognised legal device, it just tends to piss off the company withholding the money and makes them dig their deal- heels in even deeper. So is there an alternative? I think maybe there is. What if there was a register of late paying clients and contractors? What if that register allowed demolition firms to log complaints anonymously? And what if... That register also included details of client and contractor attitudes to training and safety, or if they asked demolition firms to do something unsafe or they were not comfortable with. What if the findings of that register were published by an independent third-party organisation? And what if those findings were shared only amongst named and qualified demolition folk? While you think that over, here's a word from our sponsor. This is a subject that I've looked at over the past few months. I can tell you that the website to gather such information could be built in just a few weeks. I can tell you that it could be built for just a few thousand pounds. And let's face it, we're already communicating directly with every single demolition firm in the UK. So gathering the information and ensuring that it's shared only among the demolition fraternity is no great challenge either. So I'm throwing this out there. If there was a central register that allowed you to anonymously share details of clients and contractors with questionable payment terms, or that treated you unfairly in another way? Would you use it? Or maybe we should just do it anyway? To quote another movie... If you build it, he will come. Being made to wait for payment doesn't constitute theft, although at times it comes perilously close. But the theft of plants is a subject that we addressed this week following reports that AW demolition had become the latest victim of a targeted attachment theft. I've been writing about the subject of equipment theft for the best part of 30 years. In the dim and distant past, I worked with the Kent Police to compile a list of plant that had been stolen, which I would then publish in Plant Manager's Journal, the magazine I worked for at the time. Later, I hosted a meeting involving the police, insurers, plant hires and manufacturers. The first of its kind, to the best of my knowledge, to discuss how plant theft might be prevented. The fact that plant theft is more widespread and more costly today than it has ever been proves that those efforts were in vain. More recently, I've reported on the advent of a variety of theft prevention and equipment recovery solutions. Indeed, the provider of one such system, CanTrack Global, is a sponsor of this very show. But what all these systems, and all my reporting does not address, is the unseen cost of plant theft. Sure, we can all calculate the loss of an item or an attachment, but that's only part of the story. Yesterday, my social media timeline was filled with the news that AW Demolition had become the latest victim of plant theft. The company lost, or to be more accurate, a thieving bastard had stolen an attachment and a quick coupler to which it was connected from a site in Telford. But the cost is way more than just the replacement cost of an attachment and a coupler. For one thing, the loss of an attachment could mean a machine and therefore a man unable to work. Given the role of an attachment and a frontline excavator, there is a possibility that this might also mean support machines, a crusher and trucks standing idle too. That then pushes back the completion of a project, and that could very well result in financial penalties. And that's to say nothing of the likely hike in insurance premiums, should the theft result in a claim. In short... A low-life scumbag, a thieving bastard of preventing an honest working man from earning a living today, has cost another hard-working demolition man a small fortune in raised insurance costs. To make matters worse, there is every likelihood that the attachment will never be re- reunited with its rightful owner, and the bottom feeder responsible for its disappearance will get off scot-free. Now this seems like an appropriate time for a word from our sponsor. We're extremely grateful to CanTrack for their ongoing support. We're impressed by their exceptional recovery rate, particularly with stolen attachments. And we'd strongly recommend that you consider speaking to them to help safeguard your machines, attachments and your bottom line. But this really isn't about recovery. This is about a low-life, scum-sucking parasite deciding that it's appropriate to take ownership of an item that has cost someone else hours, days and weeks and months of hard work and sacrifice to purchase. This is about someone too bone idle to earn an honest living, and, by their actions, preventing one or more hard-working men from doing so. Most of all, this is about the theft of the tools of a demolition man's trade. Several years ago, I attended an exhibition in Las Vegas. I was only scheduled to be in town for two and a bit days, so rather than hauling a laptop bag, together with all my stills and video equipment, I elected to take just my iPad to allow me to report live while I was there. On the first night of my stay, my iPad was stolen from my hotel room. Now, in the grand scheme of things, an iPad or what is or was at the time about 400 quid. Small change in comparison to the cost of an excavator attachment and a quick coupler. But the result was basically the same. That simple act of theft stole from me not just a gadget, but temporarily at least, my ability to work. As a self-employed one-man band, I can ill afford such lost time. In fact, one of the other reasons for taking the iPad with me was to allow me to work on the plane, thereby offsetting more of the cost of my trip. The criminal act of that one person took from me several days worth of work. They prevented me from doing my job. They stole photos of friends and family that I could never recover. And they ensured that a trip I had made on a strict budget went from break even to serious financial loss. To this day, I hope and pray that the thief was run over on his way out of the hotel, ideally by a large truck that was on fire and filled with rabid dogs and wasps. But I digress. My concern is that plant theft and increasingly attachment theft has just become an accepted part of the industry. We've come to accept that we will lose equipment every once in a while. We've come to accept that our insurance premiums will rise annually, often through no fault of our own. And we have come to accept that while demolition men and women across the land will work 12 hours a day to feed their families and to provide a source of employment and income for other demolition workers, there are some out there that will just make off with the proceeds of all that hard work and dedication. I sincerely hope that A W demolition gets back its attachment and its quick coupler. I hope the thief is caught, prosecuted and locked up, or, better still, I hope that the thief tries to sell the attachment to the wrong demolition man and gets his just desserts delivered by the business end of a pair of sight boots that are on fire and filled with wasps. Thanks for listening. In addition to providing us with the ability to seep into your ear holes when you're not paying attention, one of the key reasons behind the launch of Demolition News Radio was to be able to bring you longer, more complex stories with more of a narrative feel. To be honest, as much as I wanted to share this kind of story with you, I had no idea if any of you actually wanted to hear it, at least until last week. We broadcast an episode called Pies and Pilgrimage, featuring Downward Demolition, Bermondsey, Mansey's Pie and Mass Shop, and, weirdly, my dad, and within just a few hours, it had become our most popular and most listened to episode to date. So join me, won't you, as I take you on an audio journey to the town where my father was born. My dad, who is also called Mark, grew up in a tiny terraced house in Greenwalk in Bermondsey, south-east London. Together with his mum May and his dad, another Mark, they lived in the top half of a house while his aunt and uncle lived in the bottom half, sharing the solitary and often chilly outside toilet. It was from this house that my dad got married, and years later, when I came along, it was this house in which my grandparents continued to live until my grandfather passed away. The house was cramped and cold, and bizarrely their front or living room was seldom used. Regardless of how many people were in the house, everyone always gathered in the kitchen, possibly because it was the warmest room in the house. But trips to that house meant more to me than just seeing my grandparents. When we visited, there was always the possibility that we might also visit Manzies, the pie and mass shop just up the road from my father's childhood home. And for anyone born outside London, Pie and Mash is precisely what it says, and it is so much more. Built originally to feed the poorer people of London, these Pie Mash and houses evolved to become a hub and a meeting point. Manzies, located just a stone's throw from the financial core of the City of London, regularly feeds an eclectic mix of local people, tradesmen and builders in jeans, and city gents in suits, shirts and ties. As a Londoner, Pie mash is to me what paella is to a Spaniard, what spaghetti is to an Italian, what haggis is to a Scot. Sure, it's a food, but it's also my birthright. And with hindsight, I think there's something unspoken about my connection with this particular pie and mash shop. As a child, just after the Second World War, my dad ate his meals from a metal plate, on the base of which he had scratched his name. When I went to my grandparents many years later, I was always given this plate upon which to eat my pie and mash. Each portion of pie and mash and occasionally fish and chips linked me back to my father's own childhood. So when I was given the opportunity to revisit Bermondsey and Mansey's pie and mash shop with my son and cameraman Fred, and yes, his middle name is also Mark, just to show that we haven't lost our lack of imagination, I seized the chance with both hands. What's all this got to do with demolition? find out next. Downwell Demolition are taking down a block in Crimscott Street, just around the corner from where my father went to school, and just a few hundred yards from the front door of Manses. From the moment Managing Director Matt Phillips mentioned a possible visit to the site for an episode of Demolition TV, I had in mind a combined day of work and pilgrimage, and the weather gods truly smiled upon us. When we arrived on site yesterday, the site was bathed in autumn sunshine. In fact, when I later drove past Clapham Common, dozens of people were still sunbathing in late September. Say what you like about global warming, but it does have its upsides too. Either by design or good fortune, we arrived at precisely the same time as Matthew High, Downhill's project coordinator and the unspoken hero of their impressive social media profile. From the moment we walked through the gates, I could sense this was going to be a good day. I am on and off demolition sites all the time. Some are frantic, others are relaxed. Some are welcoming and others treat you like an unwanted interloper. And while all are regulated, some wear those regulations more lightly than others. Under the direction of site manager John Cloak, Downwell's Bermondsey project was all the positive elements for site visit rolled into one. The signing in process, once for the client and once for Downwell, was fast and relaxed. The site induction that followed, conducted in the sunshine, told us all that we needed to know, without treating us like idiots, and without putting the fear of God into us. The site was extraordinarily tidy, and despite the sunshine and occasional autumn breeze, dust was virtually non-existent, kept at bay by a series of suppression points around the site. When we arrived, the company's Volvo EC700 excavator, with its distinctive black high-reach boom, was parked up while the base of the building was tidied up still further. A caterpillar of skid-steer loader was being greased, and a Hitachi excavator was busily munching concrete while one of the site operatives played water on the pulverizer from a hose. And all of this took place in virtual silence. Now I say silence, but there's no such thing as a silent demolition site. The squeak from the tracks of an excavator, the whoomph of concrete hitting the ground from a height, the pulse of a hydraulic breaker, but there was no shouting, there were no barked instructions. This was a site in which everyone clearly knew their role and just got on with it. In fact, I heard site manager John raise his voice just once and that was purely because the person he was speaking to was 15 metres up in a work platform. Filming and photographing demolition is all about angles and vantage points and that's why we rely so heavily on the use of a drone to capture the demolition process. But yesterday, because of the central location, we decided to leave our drone at home. Thankfully, Matthew High and John Cloak had a solution. Although the neighboring building is not coming down entirely, it does fall under Downward Demolition's jurisdiction, and so we took the opportunity to climb the stairs to the roof. And I'm so glad that we did. Not only did that vantage point allow us to see the entire site to taking the scope of works facing Downward, it also set the site in context. From ground level, this could have been any block on any street in in any city in the UK, or the world. But from the roof, it suddenly became a part of London. On the skyline, slightly to the left, is the Shard, a stunning testament to the architect's art and one of the most striking buildings in the world. Just to to the right of that is the jumble of highly individual tower blocks where there are equally individual names that make up the city of London. The Gherkin, the Cheese Grater and the Walkie Talkie heat heat and light shimmering from its reflective front side. Once again, I was struck by just how relaxed and orchestrated the site felt. Looking down on the site from six stories up, site manager John could see everyone and everything, but no one was slacking. No one was taking an unplanned break or doing anything they shouldn't. The job just progressed below us like a well-oiled machine. It's a testament to the smooth running of the site that I was largely unaware of the passage of time. In fact, had it not been for the rumble of my stomach reminding me that it was lunchtime, I could have happily stayed there all afternoon. But Manzies was calling. Now you need to understand something more here. I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes about six months ago, and as many have spotted from recent photo and video appearances, my body is now a carb-free temple. I've lost the best part of three stone in weight, and I've been eating like a monk that entire time. But seriously, manzies. Despite my skinnier frame, and the fact that I haven't eaten potatoes in any form for almost half a year, I ordered what was once my usual. Two pies, mash and liquor. And again, if you're from outside London, you'll just have to Google liquor. It's the biggest meal I've had in what felt like forever. I waddled back to the car, full and more than a bit uncomfortable. But it was worth it. By some strange quirk of serendipity, I received an email while we were eating our lunch. Several months ago, I backed a Kickstarter campaign to help a guy called Stuart Friedman publish a new book, The Englishman and the Eel, London's Eel Pie and Mash Shops. Yesterday, he sent me an email to say the book is now at the printer and that I will be receiving my copy very soon. I backed the campaign because I love books, because I love pie and mash, even though I don't get to eat it very often these days. And I backed it because I'm keen to read the history of these shops and they are part in the fabric of the London in which I grew up. But most of all, I backed the book so that I could get an advance copy to give to my dad. That metal plate from which we both ate decades apart has long gone. Bermondsey has changed beyond all recognition from when I was a boy and even more so since my dad lived there. But pie and mash, like the bond between father and son, endures. So thanks, Delmo, for a great day out. Thanks, Mansies, for a superb lunch. And most of all, thanks, Dad, for introducing me to pyramash, or, as you would call it, Nectar of the Gods. Thanks for listening. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of Demolition Digest and that you'll share it with your friends and colleagues within the industry. And as always, thanks for listening. If you would like to help support this show, Demolition News, or The Demolition Magazine, please consider becoming a patron. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash demolition news to find out more.